mired in the Dark Ages, with its great civilizations and ruins, the Muslim world was creating the largest empire that Earth had yet seen. From Spain unto India, this military and political superpower led the world in science, philosophy, and the arts, and produced discoveries and ideas that would spark the European Renaissance. It was a world of architectural wonders and luxury unseen since the fall of Rome. Yet within this empire, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish scholars worked together in the centers of learning, and Jews and Christians enjoyed protected legal status and often reached the inner circles of power. For over five centuries, this Muslim civilization created one of the true golden ages of history. Or is this narrative just a bit too simplistic? Hello. In this series, we're going to look at a long chapter of history that is little studied in the Western world and much less understood. Our narratives of history in the West often tend to go from the greatness of the Roman Empire through its tragic fall and then to the slow emergence of medieval Europe, often skipping the entire Muslim Empire that rose and fell at that time. When it is mentioned, and that's usually in high school world history textbooks, the story of this Muslim civilization tends to be oversimplified. It's portrayed as a paradise, but one that is as lost to us today as ancient Egypt or imperial Rome. The books dealing with the history of Islam, at least the ones that make the bestseller lists, strive to figure out what went wrong and usually attribute it to some inherent flaw in Islam itself, and one that, they tell us, Christianity, thankfully, doesn't have. Well, in this series, we're going to try and take a serious and objective look at the history of Islamic civilization at its height, a time I think of as when Islam ruled the world. And that raises the question, of course, did Islam really rule the world? Well, the answer depends on what we mean. The truth is that an Islamic civilization led much of the Western and Central worlds, and by that I'm talking about everything west of China, essentially, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, led it in military, political, economic, scientific, and philosophic matters. But, and here's the catch, rarely all of those at the same time. Military conquest came much earlier than intellectual development, and some of the greatest intellectual works of the Muslim world were written when the Muslim state was weak and in decline. Well, long introductions are about as much fun as long goodbyes, so let's try and keep this brief and then we'll get right into the story. A couple of basic parameters we want to talk about first. This series does not assume that you have any background knowledge of Islam or medieval history for that matter. We're going to start right off with the Prophet Muhammad and go on from there. And although there will be a fair amount of historical detail, those are not really our focus here. Our focus is on the major trends of history, the big picture. Also, we're not going to focus very much on theological beliefs or practices or the foundations of Islam, although we'll cover enough of that to explain what's going on. In fact, that is one area of Islamic history that is covered fairly well. That is the early period, the time of Muhammad and his immediate successors and their core beliefs. And you can find a lot of good sources on that. You'll see several of these on the website on the recommendations section and I encourage you to look at those. 
But no, our focus here is going to be on a time when the Islamic Empire was at its most powerful. And particularly, we want to look at its relations with the West and with the religious minorities inside. And even though we'll be talking about events from centuries ago, we're going to try to relate these to the present situation as we go along. Well, in any discussion of Islam in the West, you're going to want to know what the agenda of the speaker is. And most of what is published today tends to be rather polemic for one side or the other. In fact, the vast majority of commentary tends to fall into one of two extremes that we want to avoid. The first is a kind of sensationalism that fills up the bookstores. If you want a guaranteed bestseller today, just use words like sword and fire, oil and Islam. Throw in Armageddon there and you're going to have a hit, whether it has any historical accuracy or not. In fact, probably better if it doesn't. On the other hand, though, the idea that everything is just wonderful and that, quote, true Islam has no issues with the West and vice versa are, are naive as well. If you remember Indiana Jones, back in his first movie, he told his class that his course was, quote, a search for fact, not for truth. If you want truth, he told them, go to the philosophy class down the hall. Well, that's kind of the situation here. This is not a theology class. We're not trying to find out what the, quote, true or real Islam is and what God really wants. The fact is, when we're talking about history, politics, security, what people believe and what they're willing to act on is what matters, whether they have found the, quote, truth or not. Now, I've talked a little bit negatively about some of the resources that are available out here, but that's not to say that there are not a lot of serious and relatively neutral historians out there writing on this period. Scholars like Amira Benison at Cambridge, Hugh Kennedy in London, John Esposito at Georgetown, to name a few, uh, produce some excellent and highly recommended works. You'll find their titles on the website in the recommendations section. It's these people and the earlier historians who preceded them who will be our main sources here. As far as my personal agenda, well, I don't have a horse in this race, but I generally prefer it when people are not fighting each other. As we used to say in the Foreign Service, when people stop talking, people start dying. And the lack of communication and understanding between the Western world and the Muslim world today can be as dangerous as the weapons that proliferate. And those misunderstandings go both ways. The great historian Philip Hitti, whose History of the Arabs remains one of the, the great works on this period, he said that Islam actually meant three things. It's a religion, of course. But it's also a culture and it was a state. Now, these three things grew up together, but it's important to realize that we're talking about much more than just a religion here. And for this series, we are primarily concerned with the last two. First, Muslim government and how it dealt with other entities, specifically how it dealt with the West and Christianity and Judaism, and how a Muslim Arab culture grew to be one of the world's greatest intellectual movements and impacted our civilization. Now one last point, I promise. The question, of course, why study this period of history? Well, the idea that history repeats itself is pretty bogus, but as Mark Twain supposedly said, history does sometimes rhyme. And what he meant by that is we can find certain parallels. Or, I like to put it another way, history tells us what's possible. So the other part of that question is, of course, why this particular period? Well, I believe this is the most illustrative period 
in what is possible in Muslim-Christian relations for a few reasons. Number one, it provides the clearest examples of Muslim rule in action. Unfortunately, the term Islamic State has probably been permanently ruined by ISIS, so we'll talk about a Muslim empire here. But there's a lot of speculation today on what Muslim rule might look like, and most of it is alarmist and scary. But none of that seems to be based on the evidence of what actually took place when a series of Muslim states actually existed. Secondly, this period defies most of the stereotypes about Muslim culture that are popular in the media today. This is a time when Islam embraced and led the way in science and discovery, when Muslims sought out and worked with people of other religions, when treaties and cooperation between Muslim and Christian states were more common than the wars between them, and when treatment of religious minorities within the empire was very tolerant, at least by medieval standards. Now this is not to say that these points wouldn't be violated at times and would later on decay, but again, if we're using history to show what is possible, then this gives us a good idea. Additionally, this period is the historical golden age for most, but not all Muslims, and we'll talk about why that is. But it's a point of reference, and one that they feel that most Westerners, realistically, don't know anything about. And lastly, there is the question of what happened. Fundamentalism and conservatism are quite real, and they're more prevalent in the Muslim world today than they were centuries ago. We can't just talk about the golden days. We have to explore this aspect, too. So that's enough of an introduction. You're still here, so let's get to the actual story. If you're going to pick the most likely place for a great empire and civilization to emerge in the 7th century, Western Arabia probably wouldn't have been it. The area was, like it is today, a desert region with very few resources and populated mostly by Bedouin tribes. The word Arab, in fact, means to move, and that is an essential part of the nature. This is what the tribes did. They moved. They were nomadic. Um, the first Muslims, however, we want to be clear, were not really Bedouin. They were city dwellers from, of course, the city of Mecca, one of the very few, which were located mostly along the coast. We have to kind of put this into perspective. When we call Mecca a city at this time, compared to the great cities of Syria, Egypt, or Persia, we're really talking about a small town, but one that was very important. Of course, the word Mecca today refers to a gathering place, like we say someplace is a Mecca for music, for example. And that's what Mecca was. It was the major trading center of the region for the Bedouin tribes of the interior, and also for trade caravans heading north to Syria or south to Yemen. By this time as well, sea trade along the Red Sea coast was replacing the land sea route, so the coast was very important. But Mecca's special status derived from the great shrine at its center. This is the Kaaba. Now you've seen this, of course, in pictures of the Hajj, or the pilgrimage. It's the black cube at the center of the great mosque that people are walking around. The dominant religion in Arabia before Islam was polytheism, or uh, less charitably we call it paganism, meaning the worship of local tribal deities uh, with each uh, god having accompanying idols. These are quite numerous, by the way. The Kaaba was said to have housed the idols of 360 gods representing the different tribes of the area. 
Now, while this place would become associated with idolatry, and of course that's what it was all about, and one of the great defining moments in the history of Islam came when the Prophet smashed the idols and dedicated the Kaaba to the worship of the god of monotheism. At the time, the collection of idols in the Kaaba was seen as a good thing. Outside of Mecca, tribes could and did raid each other. They were almost in a state of perpetual war. Now, this was uh, nothing unusual. In fact, it was part of the Bedouin lifestyle, and it was considered fair game that you could raid other tribes. It was a very harsh environment, and this was seen as part of survival. Around the shrine, however, no weapons were allowed. And the fact that everybody's tribal god could be respected and worshipped in peace was seen as a good thing. I mean, you couldn't have this many different idols outside of this peaceful area. It was a true city. This helped turn Mecca into the free, open city it was, and that, of course, made it a center of trade, or vice versa. But it was also the center of communication among the Bedouin. Right? This was the one time or the one place that they would come in together and be able to exchange stories, famous for poetry competitions. The Prophet's tribe, the Quraysh, was responsible for maintenance of the shrine, and that made them very important in the city of Mecca. Muhammad was born into a relatively small branch of the Quraysh tribe, and he was not a particularly important person at the time of his birth. In fact, he was an orphan. He's said to have been thrice orphaned, meaning that his father, then his mother, then his grandfather, all of whom were his guardians, died. And so one of the effects of the founding of Islam in this area is that when Mecca became a Muslim city, and it was the second city to be converted, it was still the center of this communication network, and so word spread very quickly among the Bedouin tribes, which is partially due for the rapid expansion of Islam. Now, not all of Arabia was polytheistic. At the time, Christianity and Judaism had spread throughout Arabia, and in fact, there were very important Jewish tribes in the city of Medina, uh, which would become the first Islamic community. Now, the Bedouins tend not to have written records, of course, because uh, they were mobile, so it's hard to say for certain which tribes were exclusively Christian, uh, but we can see from some of the settled areas around the fringes of the desert how much Christianity had spread. For one example, the city of Najran, which sits on the border of Yemen and Saudi Arabia today, was a major center of Christianity. And Christian missionaries had traveled all the way down to Yemen, and the kingdom of Yemen is said to have been converted to Judaism by this time. So that gives us an idea of how far these monotheistic religions had spread to the south of the Arabian Peninsula. So the extent of the Prophet's contacts with other monotheists, particularly Christians, is subject to somewhat conflicting traditions, and you can sort of understand why that would be. A well-known incident in the Prophet's biography describes a trip that he made to Syria as a youth with his uncle Abu Talib. He was part of a merchant family, and so this was not uh, something unusual. A Christian monk named Bahira is said to have prophesied that Muhammad would become a great prophet. Uh, the cousin of Muhammad's wife, uh, Waraka ibn Nafal, he was basically a Christian monk. He didn't live in isolation, but that's uh, essentially what he was. He was famous for uh, copying the New Testament into Arabic, and he taught the Christian scriptures. In the tradition, it is said that he told Muhammad 
that he was a prophet. He was the first one to convince uh, the prophet Muhammad that the word he had received from the angel Gabriel was actually a prophetic revelation. Although Waraka was a Christian who never converted to Islam, Muhammad is said to have had a vision confirming that Waraka was in paradise. And this is one of the pieces of evidence uh, that is used to demonstrate that under Islam, Christians and Jews uh, would go to heaven. But probably the strongest impact on Muhammad's early years were the merchant missions that he led into Syria. His first wife, Khadija, uh, was an important merchant of Mecca. She was the widow uh, who took over the, the merchant company. And she commissioned trade caravans, and the most important destination being Syria to the north. Now, to those who study the role of women in Islam, which is a very popular topic we hear a lot about today, the fact that the first convert to Islam was a powerful female businesswoman says a lot. Now, the Prophet Muhammad was known to be extremely trustworthy, and he is said to have led caravans into Syria on multiple occasions. Now, the contrast here is really important. Even Mecca, which is the most important city in the Hejaz, this region of Arabia, was really a small desert town by the standards of the great empires of the world. And it's further surrounded by Bedouin tribes. Syria, by contrast, was part of the Byzantine Empire, which was the world's strongest and certainly most uh, influential culturally in the world, at least outside of China and India, which we're not really considering here. Syria had been the site of successive civilizations. Damascus is said to be the oldest continually occupied city in the world. Uh, and the focus of this Christian culture, of course, was on the building of great cathedrals, on churches. That's where the emphasis was placed. So the scale of buildings dedicated to the worship of Christ, to the worship of this monotheistic God, would have dwarfed anything to be seen in Bedouin Arabia, certainly would have dwarfed the, the Kaaba with its um, many idols. And so this was certainly a, a dazzling impact on the prophet. Well, monotheism by this time was both the great unifier and divider of the medieval world. Now it could be lost on no one that the one factor that held the great empires together at the time and gave legitimacy to their rule was the Christian religion. Christianity gave legitimacy to rulers as far south as Abyssinia, which is current-day Ethiopia, and Yemen, and as far west as Rome. And the greatest and most ostentatious displays of their wealth and power were in religious buildings. And so that would have had a strong impact on someone coming from this Bedouin culture with its uh, polytheism. Yet at the same time, the monotheists were riven with doctrinal disputes and divisions, particularly the Christians, and of course this is not abated to this day. Most of the Christians of the Arabian Peninsula were Nestorians. The theology isn't really important here, but they believed that Christ had two natures, divine and human. By the time of Muhammad, this belief had been condemned as a heresy, and the Nestorians were largely driven out of Byzantine territory. Uh, Khadija's cousin, uh, who we mentioned earlier, Waraka, he was most likely a, an Ebionite, which is sort of a hybrid Christian-Jewish sect that followed Jewish law. Just to say there were a lot of divisions and disputes. At the center of many of the disputes within Christianity, uh, certainly not the only subject of dispute, but one that continues to this day, 
was the authenticity of sources. What are the correct sources and scriptures to use? Debate over which scriptures were genuine uh, and which versions of these scriptures should be used raged, especially during the first three centuries of Christianity. But even prior to this, there had been divisions. The Jews of Ethiopia had a different version of the Talmud than the Babylonian Talmud, which was used uh, by rabbinical Judaism. Today, at least 12 different canons of the Christian Bible are used. By canons, we mean which scriptures, which books of the Bible are considered authentic. This is not to get into the number of different translations that exist. And even in English, uh, the subject of which Christian um, sects accept which English translation is uh, very, very hotly uh, debated. You can kind of understand this confusion. So to someone coming from the Arabian Peninsula, on the one hand, you could see that monotheism was this great, powerful force that could unite empires. Kings ruled, supposedly, on the uh, legitimacy of being the representatives of God. But at the same time, you could see these monotheistic religions fighting amongst themselves, dividing amongst themselves, and at the heart of it, uh, a lot was about the scriptures. With this background in mind, it's important to see how the revelation that Muhammad would re receive, and which would be written down as the Quran later on, was fundamentally different. In this episode, I want to focus on this revelation, the Quran, and how it is unique and how it differs from other scriptures like the Bible and the Torah. Uh, the first revelation began in the year 609 AD. Uh, the prophet Muhammad at that time was said to have withdrawn to a cave periodically uh, where he would pray and contemplate. He received his first revelation and it said that it came through the angel Gabriel but was the direct words of God. Now the word Quran really means recitation and that's what happened here. This was not written down until after the death of the prophet. And so you may ask, how can we be sure about the accuracy of these revelations? Well, we have to remember that Arab culture, particularly Bedouin culture, was fundamentally an oral culture. I mean, they just didn't have the luxury of writing things down. Poetry and storytelling were their arts. So the idea of memorizing something, memorizing a story, memorizing a poem exactly, and repeating it is something that was very common at this time. And by the same token, uh, if you received a message from God, it was not something that would be lightly taken or forgotten. And the Quran was revealed in small bits over a period of 23 years. I have to bear in mind we're talking about a book when it's written form is about the size of the New Testament. And as uh, Islam began to gain followers and the Prophet began to have um, companions, they would recite these verses that they would get in small bits. And so by the time we get the entire text of the Quran, and it was not revealed in the same order that it's written down, uh, we have had many people who have been making a practice of reciting it to each other and memorizing it. Now there's a fundamental difference here. While the Bible is said to have been written by 35, 40 or more writers, depending on which canon you accept, who were inspired by God, I mean we have letters, we have histories, 
Um, you have even poetry in the form of the Psalms. In the Quran, what is recorded are the exact words of God in the language they were spoken, the language of Arabic. Now, Muslims do not believe that God speaks Arabic. They believe he could speak any language he wanted to, but that was the language of the prophet who was receiving the message, Muhammad, and so that's why it was revealed in that language. But it is the words of God conveyed through the angel Gabriel, but direct, verbatim, word for word. And this, we can see, is a direct response to what was happening in Christianity. All this dispute over the correct versions of Scripture, the correct translations of Scripture, and all the problems that created. Well, we weren't going to have the same problem in Islam. So, by the way, when you hear someone on TV or writing in a, a magazine who says, quote, in the Quran, Muhammad says, turn the channel, because in the Quran, Muhammad does not say it is God who is speaking. So that means this person really doesn't know what they're talking about. So this revelation was meant to be read only in Arabic. There is no such thing as a translation of the Quran. Any authorized Quran will say it is a, quote, interpretation of the meanings of the Quran in English, French, or some other language. Uh, it will also have a parallel text with, say, English running down one side and Arabic down the other side, so you can see both of them. And if you were to look at the English text, you'll see that there are a lot of words inserted in parentheses and brackets and footnotes, and you get an idea of how difficult it is to make any sort of accurate word-for-word -word translation from classical Arabic into English, which was a language that didn't even exist at that time. So the result is we get a text of the Quran, which is exactly the same, no matter uh, what sect you are from, whether you're reading it in New Jersey or Nigeria or Jakarta. In fact, they went to such a degree to make sure they had the exact uh, representation of what Muhammad heard that in order to put the Quran finally into written form later on, new symbols had to be added to the Arabic language for things like the pauses in between sounds on how long to hold the vowels, the intonation, and so on. You can see they were going for an exact record of what was said. You might think that this would solve the problem, and it did as far as the Quran goes, but as we're going to talk about later on, there become other sources of law in Islam, and these do not have anywhere near the same um, agreement. In fact, when we talk about the teachings or the sayings of the Prophet, the Hadith, there's a tremendous dispute about them. But we can see what they're doing here, trying to avoid the same kind of confusion that had plagued Christianity. We have to remember that the message that the uh, prophet received was over a 23-year period, and the conditions were changing in that time. It was aimed at two populations. The first was calling the pagan Arabs to monotheism, that is, giving up their idols, worshiping the God of Abraham. And secondly, it was a call to the existing monotheists. And this is why a lot of historians refer to uh, Muhammad as more of a reformer. They see him more in the line of uh, a Martin Luther or a Latter-day Prophet. Muhammad was not trying to create a new religion called Islam. The word Islam means submission in Arabic. 
and it specifically refers to submission to God, of course. It's the same root we get the word surrender from. And the idea is a complete surrender, not just of yourself, taking only one God against all others, but the idea of giving up any sorts of other loyalties or supports in submitting every aspect of your life to God. It was clear that even in the early Christian communities that you could visit from Arabia, there was a whole lot of dispute about certain practices like the idea of icons in Christian worship, the idea of praying to saints, uh, the cult of the Virgin Mary, and so forth. All these ideas that were seeming to be splitting the idea of worshiping one God. And this is really at the core of the uh, Islamic message. In fact, one of the early acts of Islamic missionary activity was the Prophet sending messages to the leaders of the major Christian communities that he had contact with. Amongst these were the, the Byzantines, uh, Christians in Persia, and the Egyptian rulers. Now tradition says that the Persian Emperor tore up the letter, but the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius actually had a long discussion with the messenger, who was Abu uh, Safyan, a very important early Muslim, and allegedly acknowledged that Muhammad was indeed a prophet. There is a tradition that he wanted to convert to Islam, but was afraid to do so. Now, this of course is hard to verify, and it may well be revisionist history generated after the fact that the Persian Empire fell completely to the Muslims, but the Byzantines held out for centuries. But in one famous incident, the Christian king of Abyssinia, that is Ethiopia in, in Africa today, uh, is said to have drawn a line on the ground with his staff in between himself and the Muslim missionary and said, the difference between you and me is as thin as this line. So we get the idea here that what we're seeing is not the creation of a new religion but really a reform movement. The idea of sort of taking out these things that had entered into uh, particularly the Christian religion. Now the messages that the prophet sent, if you read the English translation, it's somewhat uh, misleading because they say things like, we invite you to Islam, making it sound like we invite you to join a new religion. But this is really the uh, an unfortunate tendency we we have to leave some Arabic terms untranslated so they sound like something exotic, right? So when he says, I, we invite you to Islam, the complete translation of this would be, we invite you to submission. We call on you to submit completely to God. And he was speaking to people like the Byzantine Empire, where they had a, a large culture of religious icons and saints and so forth, to purge out all these add-ons. Now, another good example of this tendency not to translate words from Arabic, which should should be, of course, is the word Allah. We're often asked the question, is Allah the same thing as God? Well, the word Allah means, quote, the God. And it's very clear, as we read the Quran, that this is the God of Abraham, of Noah, this is the God of the Israelites, uh, this is the God of David and Solomon, and even the God of Jesus. So it's very clearly uh, referring to God, just like in Spanish, God is called Dios. Well, we wouldn't say that Spanish people worship Dios instead of God. And so this is something to bear in mind, that a lot of times these Arabic terms are not translated and they're meant to sound like they're something different than what they actually are. So the prophet Muhammad seems to be 
in these early days calling on monotheists to submit, to completely submit everything back to the God that they were supposedly serving. Now over time when they don't do this, when they, when they refuse and when they stick with their original practices, Islam comes to be seen as a term for a religion separate from Judaism and Christianity, which is the way we see it today. But that was not the intent. In fact, I remember one uh, incident when I took a group of students to the largest mosque in uh, New York City. It's, uh, it's in Midtown Manhattan. And when we went in and sat down, the imam of the mosque came in, and the first thing he said is, you're all Muslims. Now, he was assuming they were all Christians and Jews. But his point was, a Muslim is someone who submits to God. That was the idea at the beginning. Okay, These religions do begin to um, split and that split becomes very pronounced as the years go on. Now this perception also worked from the other side as well. Uh, today we make very clean distinctions between Christianity, Judaism, and Islam as the three great monotheistic religions. At the time, it wasn't seen so clearly. Arabic does have a single term for Christianity, that's uh, Masihi, and it's used today to refer to Christians as a whole. But at the time, and we clearly see this in the Quran, for example, the terms for different sects were most likely to be used. Nabataean, Sabian, Nasari, and so forth. From the Christian side, there were many different competing sects of Christianity. Uh, we've talked about some of these. The Nestorians, for example. Some of these were seen as heretics. So the tendency uh, was to see Islam as yet another sect maybe a heretical sect in some eyes, but it was yet another sect of Christianity. It actually wasn't until fairly late uh, that it would be seen as a, a separate religion. Now, the political situation in the Byzantine Empire also played a role in this relationship. Arabia was seen as an untamed land on the fringes of the Byzantine Empire. I mean, once you crossed past uh, Syria, you entered into the desert, and it was a dangerous area patrolled by Bedouins uh, where you could be robbed very easily. And truly, the Bedouin made their living by raiding. The Romans had made several attempts to try and conquer this area, and they only succeeded in losing their armies in the desert. So by the time of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, the Byzantines had actually started paying a Christian Arab state along the fringes of the Syrian desert, uh, they were the Ghassanids, to act as a buffer against these Bedouins. So when the news came that a prophet from Arabia, from you know, well down in central Arabia, was uniting the various different Arab tribes under the banner of monotheism, to the Byzantine Empire, I was seen as a good thing. It was seen as welcome news. Maybe he can tame uh, these wild pagan Bedouins, raid our caravans from time to time. The idea that this uh, monotheistic Bedouin faith would one day conquer the entire Byzantine Empire was not a possibility that anyone would, would uh, seriously consider. As you might imagine, the people of the Quraysh, the people of Mecca, who depended on this shrine, the Kaaba, with its 360 idols, were not exactly thrilled about the preaching of a strict version of monotheism, to say the least. And in fact, the, the prophet and his earlier 
followers faced death threats from the very beginning. So by 622 AD, we're talking at this point 13 years after the beginning of the revelation, new Muslim community was essentially chased out of the city of Mecca by the economic elites, the members of the Quraysh, who felt threatened by this monotheism. As it happened, uh, they were invited to the city of Medina. The city is actually called Yathrib at the time. The word Medina means city in Arabic. However, there were a number of tribes within Medina and there were disputes between them and particularly between uh, one of the, the major Jewish tribes and some of the other uh, polytheistic tribes in Medina and they had heard the reputation of Muhammad as an arbiter, as a wise man and so they invited him to be essentially the mediator in these disputes and it's in 622 that the early Muslim community migrated from the city of Mecca to Medina. Uh, the word for migration in Arabic is Hijra, and so you may know that the Hijra is the beginning of the Islamic calendar. 622 AD is when the Islamic calendar begins. Now you might try and use that to figure out, compare the the years to the years in, in um, our Christian calendar. However, that won't work because the Islamic calendar is a lunar calendar. It has 11 less days than our calendar does, and so it doesn't parallel exactly. Anyway, the reason the Islamic calendar begins with this event is this is when the first Muslim community is formed. You might think it would start with the first revelation in 609, but this is seen as such a watershed because here a Muslim community with Muhammad as its head is established in peace in the city of Medina. And this is a very important distinction between Islam and the other religions, particularly Christianity, that we will see. Christianity begins as really a, an underground movement inside the Roman Empire. Christians would not have any political power until about three centuries after Christ. But by that time, the Christian scriptures and doctrines had been agreed upon. And as we know in the Bible, Jesus famously commanded his followers to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And every time they tried to get him to take a, a political stance to, to start a revolution, uh, he, he didn't want to do that. This is very different from the situation in Islam. Islam begins and starts its counting of history from the moment an Islamic community is formed. And remember, when we're talking about Bedouin society, they don't have elaborate governments, you know, with an economic department, a military department, and so on. I mean, basically, you have one leader. This community, its political leadership, religious leadership, uh, economic leadership, military leadership, uh, because they were constantly under threat uh, from the Quraysh of Mecca. All of these being centered in the one leader of this tribe, essentially, it was a new tribe based on religious affiliation, uh, is essential. And we have to remember that. So Islam from the very beginning begins as a state. A small state, but it grows very rapidly. And the leadership is never a strictly what we would call, what we would define as religious or spiritual leadership. It, it always involves the complete political, economic leadership of this community. And so it is in this first community in Medina uh, that we see really the beginnings of this Islamic empire that is going to come to dominate the world. And that's what we're going to 
talk about in the future. So, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast so far. Uh, for our next episode, we're going to continue looking at the mission of the Prophet Muhammad, the spread of Islam, and I want to focus particularly on relations between Islam and Christianity and Judaism, the other religions, and how these begin and the precedents are set in this very early period. So thank you very much. I hope you'll stick with us. Until then, we'll see you later. Ma salama. <music>